0: Hi everybody, happy birthday to us, Fallacious Trump is three, and this is the third and last of the birthday presents that we're giving to you during our very brief uh, time off, and this is the audio from the sceptics in the pub talk that I gave a couple of months ago about my work as a film censor, essentially, film examiner for the British Board of Film Classification. So there's information behind the scenes, how the the, uh, film censorship in the UK got set up, and how it worked when I was there. And uh, there's a and a session as well. The, the session is introduced and the Q&A session is run by Dave Jenkins from Coventry Skeptics in the Pub. So thanks very much, Dave, for letting us post this. And also thanks to Skeptics in the Pub. Um, the, the Skeptics in the Pub in, in throughout the country and in fact throughout the world have had to stop their in-person events during the pandemic. But a bunch of them got together to create Skeptics in the Pub online. So every Thursday, there is a talk at twitch.tv slash SITP, and they're on scientific, uh, critical thinking, uh, sceptical subjects, or subjects that the organisers think would be interesting to people who are into that kind of stuff. And they are absolutely fascinating talks. I haven't seen one yet that hasn't been amazing. and. Uh, there's, there's an opportunity to ask questions and then afterwards there's a, a kind of virtual pub to, to go and chat with the other people uh, in the group about the talk and just about general life, really, and, and kind of get to know some people. So I very, very strongly recommend going along to a Skeptics in the Pub uh, online talk. Meanwhile, I hope you enjoy this one and we will be back next week with our regularly scheduled Fallacious Trump episode.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Skeptics in the Pub Online. My name is Dave, and I'm from Coventry Skeptics in the Pub. Coventry is just one of the many groups that at the beginning of the pandemic decided to work together to put on weekly talks based around science, reason, and critical thinking. If you like what we're doing, then you can make a donation on PayPal at sitp.online/donate. Uh, the link is on the screen, and our lovely mods will put the link, link into the chat. Tonight, tonight, we'll start with the talk. We will then have a 15-minute break, then have a Q&A, if you want to ask a question to the speaker, then you can go to sitp.online/ask, and you can also upvote for the questions that uh, you would most like to hear answered. After the Q&A, we'll have our virtual, weekly virtual pub, The Lockins Razor, on Zoom, where you can all come and have a chat. Our talk tonight has closed captions, which you can turn on by pressing the CC button underneath the video. Please ask a mod in the chat if you're struggling with that. Tonight's talk will contain references to sexual violence and animal cruelty. There are no images, but some viewers may find this disturbing. Tonight's speaker is Jim Cliff. He was a British Board of Film Classification examiner from 2001 to 2009, during which time he classified over 7,000 films, videos and video games. He's now a freelance video producer and host of the Fallacious Trump podcast. Please put your virtual hands together for Jim.
0: Thanks very much. So our story starts in May of 1897. It's a year and a half since the Lumiere brothers uh, created their combined camera and projector and presented the first public screen screening of a uh, motion picture. Um, Their motion pictures are now the the kind of most exciting new big thing. And there's a huge annual charity event in Paris where they decide to have a screening of a film in a large wooden warehouse. Unfortunately, the projection equipment catches fire and there is a fire which causes um, basically uh, over 120 people are killed in the fire, and this is the most significant, one of the most significant, but by no means the last fire involving film. The reason that fire happened, and the reason lots of fires happened over the ensuing decades, was that celluloid, or cellulose nitrate, is basically an explosive. It is extremely flammable. Uh, It'll burn even if you put it in underwater. And um, in order to project a film onto a screen, you need to run that celluloid pretty close to A very bright and in those days that meant very hot bulb so fires became reasonably common and on top of that um there weren't really any custom-built cinemas at the time so some theaters and music halls had been converted to be cinemas but most films were shown in kind of temporary structures in fairgrounds uh, churches and even hastily converted shops like this one in stratford whereas you can see from the headline they had a fire in 1908 so health and safety was clearly an issue And this led to, uh, in 1909, the Cinematograph Act, which gave local councils the responsibility to um, license buildings where films could be shown. And initially, that was all to do with health and safety. But over the next few years, some councils started to use it to justify... restricting cinema opening times, sometimes even restricting which films could be shown or who could go and see them. Um, And there was absolutely no consistency across the UK. It was kind of done council by council. The film industry started not unreasonably to worry about censorship, uh, especially because in 1912, the Daily Mail started getting upset about a film called From the Manger to the Cross, which they were upset about it just because it was about the life of Christ. It wasn't particularly contentious or, or problematic. They just felt that that was sacrilegious and shouldn't be allowed. Um, And the Daily Mail will come back later. But um, basically because of that, and uh, the the film industry were were worried about the possible intervention of government censorship, and they decided that they would set up their own self-regulating body. So in 1912, uh, they decided to do that. And at the beginning of 1913, the British Board of Film Censors was born. It was a non-profit non-governmental organization, which was funded from the fees that they charged to the film industry. In the beginning, that was two pounds per reel of film, and reel is about 20 minutes of film. Um, It's still charged in that way, and where people still submit films, it's charged by the foot. Uh, Most of it's digital these days, and and obviously with video, it's digital, so that's charged by the minutes. Um, In the beginning, there were two male examiners, and uh, by the 1920s, there were four examiners, one of whom was a woman. Um, those examiners were not part of the film industry. The idea from the very beginning was to keep it independent from the industry. And uh, the classifications were done on behalf of local councils. So the local councils still theoretically had the the right to restrict uh, various things about cinemas, including who got to go in to see films, um, but by the mid 20s essentially most of them just rubber stamped the bbfc decisions and th- and it kind of became consistent across the whole country and that's actually still the case today that's how it works all the councils still have the right to make their own decisions and the the bbfc is just the the authority that that kind of gives them that information and and they mostly rubber stamp those decisions the licensing act of, 19, of 2003 Um, did designate the BBFC as the body for doing that, but it didn't take away the responsibility of councils essentially to to be the kind of final arbiter. And so uh, that's why in Torquay, uh, Monty Python's Life of Brian was banned in the 70s, even though the BBFC gave it a category. And um, that actually wasn't overturned until 2008 when someone resubmitted it to the council because they wanted to show it in a film festival. It was banned in various other places in the 70s as well. Uh, And it's also, that's why Westminster Council banned Crash Um, despite the BBFC giving it uh, an 18. And it's also why lots of local councils gave Mrs Doubtfire and Spider-Man PG when um, the BBFC gave them both 12. So in the beginning, there were only two categories. There was U, which is universal, suitable for everyone. And there was A, which was uh, supposedly suitable for adults. But actually there was no restriction. There was nothing to stop children being taken in. And it was only a couple of councils um, that that actually decided, uh, again, in the 20s, to, to make that an advisory category, make it a, an accompanied category, essentially, that where if you wanted to take a child in under 16, you could, but they couldn't go in on their own. But for the most part, again, there was no consistency across the UK, and, and it was really just um, to let people know it was information. In 1932, they added an H category. This was for horror films and that's because basically 1931 Dracula and Frankenstein were released people got a bit upset and so the BBFC decided to put to put an H on horror films and let people know that arguably they were even less suitable for children in some cases um again it it wasn't mandatory um, although some councils decided to to restrict people going into horror films to to 16 and above but For the most part there was really no explanation from the board why they gave different films different categories or why they cut things Um, and it was kind of largely on the whim of the examiners the first information that um, we really have about what was cut and what fed into um, category decisions was from 1916 when uh, the second president of the board tp o'connor went through all of the annual reports for the bill for the board's first couple of years and basically listed all of the things that films had been cut for, or in some cases rejected for. Um, Those included some things that these days would be a bit less of an issue, like uh, bathing scenes, passing the limits of propriety, or references to controversial politics. Um, But it also included some things that even today are still considered for cuts, even at 18, including cruelty to animals and uh, the modus operandi of criminals, both of which we'll come back to a bit later. Again, there was still really no no accountability, no transparency, um, and there were some kind of cont- well, not necessarily controversial even, but just just whimsical decisions that were made. In uh, nineteen twenty-eight, there was a film called The Seashell and the Clergyman. It was a surrealist film, uh, and the examiners' report says it is apparently meaningless. But if there is a meaning, it is doubtless objectionable. So. That was what what distributors were dealing with. Um, There were no written rules, and because of that, basically the direction that the board took uh, at any point in the next um, few decades were um, guided very much by the idiosyncrasies of the people who were in charge at any given time. The chief censor after the Second World War, Arthur Watkins, uh, his main problem was the rise in teenage culture, youth culture, and the rebelliousness and anti-authoritarianism that came with it. Um, he dealt with Rebel Without a Cause. Uh, he also dealt with the Wild One in 1954. Um, the way he dealt with that was that he rejected it, because as far as he was concerned, he said it was a spectacle of unbridled hooliganism. And um, in fact, that film didn't get a certificate until 1967. Um, under Arthur Watkins, uh, they introduced also an X category. Uh, X basically took the part, the the um, place of H because by that point, by the fifties, the kind of horror fad had largely died out. H hadn't been used for that many films as it turned out, Um, but X was made a mandatory category. So that meant that people under 16 could not go into X rated films. And it was used obviously not just for horror, but for for anything that was considered more adult, more uh, kind of sex and violence stuff was allowed in those than were allowed in films rated A. Um, John Trevelyan took over. As secretary at the time, that was the the name for the chief censor at the time in the late 50s, he presided over somewhat of a liberalization of the board. Uh, He was in place when the Obscene Publications Act came in in 1959, which was almost immediately um, successfully challenged by the book Lady Chatterley's Lover. And uh, he saw this as the beginning of a shift of uh, public views of morality through the 60s, really. Um, It was his opinion that the BBFC cannot assume responsibility for the guardianship of public morality. Uh, so it was under Trevelyan that we got the first use of fuck in film, in uh, Ulysses in 1967, the first uh, full frontal female nudity in Blow Up, and the first full frontal male nudity in Women in Love. Trevelyan also oversaw an overhaul of the rating system in 1970. U was still suitable for all. Um, A was downgraded to basically what we now think of as PG. So it was definitely an advisory category. It was just saying the thing. It's not really suitable for the youngest children. There was a new category introduced called AA, which required adult accompaniment for any child under the age of fourteen. And X was moved from sixteen to eighteen at that point, but was still a mandatory category. One of the most idiosyncratic and and probably most controversial um, censors was James Furman. he presided over an extremely busy period at the board. He was a controversial figure. He, he very much enjoyed being a part of the film industry and the power that he had in his role. He, he personally flew to L.A. to help Steven Spielberg um, cut Raiders of the Lost Ark for PG. Um, but among film fans, one of the things he's probably best known for is his stance on weapons. The year before James Furman took over, um, Enter the Dragon came out. And it was it kind of ushered in an era of of martial arts. It was at the beginning of the the, the wave of martial arts films that became very popular. Uh, Furman noticed a few newspaper articles and reports that talked about teenagers getting interested in martial arts and possibly even carrying martial arts weapons. And he decided that this was something that needed to be cracked down on. So he instituted a blanket ban on nunchucks, uh, which is what Bruce is is holding here, Bruce Lee and throwing stars as well. So all of the martial arts films that came out in that period were heavily cut if they contained these things. And uh, it also led to some quite weird classification decisions in the ensuing decades. Uh, There was a Jean-Claude Van Damme film in the 80s called No Retreat, No Surrender. Uh, As you can see from this scene, there is a poster on the wall of Bruce Lee holding nunchucks. um, And uh, it's actually from Enter the Dragon. And um, all sight of this poster in the film was cut. That isn't as ridiculous as it got, though, because then in, the, in 1991, the sequel to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze, came out, and uh, Michelangelo wielded um, sausages, basically, sausages that had been strung together with a bit of rope as, as nunchucks, and that was also cut. Um, And I think at that point, even people who had kind of previously had some sympathy for Furman's stance on these kinds of weapons, uh, even they thought this was a bit ridiculous. Um, After Furman left in 1999, uh, the the ban was completely rescinded and it came very much then down to glamorization of easily accessible weapons like knives and things like that, that was more likely to get cut. Martial arts weapons were in many cases reinstated if those films were ever resubmitted for classification. Um, under Furman, there was another overhaul of the rating system, this time to basically the one that we know today. So uh, there was U, PG for parental guidance, uh, 15 and 18. And the 15 and the 18 were mandatory categories. Then uh, the 12 category was added in 1989. Batman was the first film uh, rated 12 in the cinema. There were still no 12 on video until 1994. Uh, and then much later on in 2002, Um, the 12 in cinema changed to 12A, which meant that people under 12 were allowed in if they were accompanied by a grown-up. Another significant change that was made under uh, James Furman was the shift in the name from the British Board of Film Censors to the British Board of Film Classification. And this basically, as far as Furman was concerned, this represented the job that they did much better. Um, And it's true, he really did make that change in the ethos of the board as well because uh, when he came in in 1974 40% of all cinema films were cut and uh, when he stepped down in 1998 there was uh, that was down to 4% um these days it's much closer to 1% and um the vast majority of those are, are category cuts where the the company has requested a specific category so uh, but by far the most Um, important, significant thing that happened during James Furman's reign was the rise of video. Uh, In 1979, VCRs uh, were first sold in the UK. This is the Ferguson Video Star. It's the one I had as a kid. Um, And in the late 70s and early 80s, you could buy or rent um, basically any video you liked in Woolworths, WH Smiths, on the high street, anywhere. There was no restriction, no classification, no censorship. Um, And There was an influx of fairly strong horror films, um, largely from Europe, that capitalised basically on this kind of open market. Uh, One such film was Cannibal Holocaust. And uh, the the makers of Cannibal Holocaust had a brilliant idea in terms of promoting their film. What they did was they sent a copy of the film and a letter complaining about it to Mary Whitehouse. Um, If you don't know who Mary Whitehouse is, uh, this is her. She was the kind of self-appointed head of the National Viewer and Listener Association, and her mission was to clean up film and television, to get it kind of get rid of all that nasty sex and violence. Um, the hope by the makers of Cannibal Holocaust was that she would make a fuss about it, it would get lots of publicity, and they would sell lots of copies of their film. It wasn't an inherently bad idea. Um, in the 90s, when the first Grand Theft Auto video game came out, uh, Rockstar, the makers of Grand Theft Auto um, hired Max Clifford, the publicist, to basically kick up a fuss about how awful this game is and how demonic it is and and, and it was going to ruin everyone's lives. And um, and that got a lot of publicity and, and Grand Theft Auto became the biggest game of the year. Uh, so the idea itself wasn't necessarily bad, but it didn't really work out for Cannibal Holocaust. Mary Whitehouse did kick up a bit of a fuss about it. Uh, the Daily Mail took up um, the the fight and MPs got involved, the Daily Mail had a campaign against what came to be called video nasties. Um, The Director of Public Prosecutions made a list of 70 videos that they had either already prosecuted under the Obscene Publications Act or had prosecutions pending against them. And police were sent out to raid video shops, um, essentially to to seize any copies of anything that was on the list and and ultimately destroy them. And what um, ultimately came out of this was the Video Recordings Act of 1984. And that was the law that designated the BBFC to, to classify any video that was sold or rented in the UK. Um, so for the first time, the the BBFC had an actual legal basis for the work that they were doing. They were, they were designated in law to do this job. And, and from that point on, no uh, video or DVD, uh, as once DVDs came along, were was able to be sold or rented in the UK without already having a BBFC classification, except for some very narrow exempt categories. Um, One of the very last things that James Furman did before he left was draft a set of written guidelines. And this was the first time that the board had written guidelines, and they were published in the uh, annual report of 1998. Um, They were basically still James Furman's ideas of how things should be done. Um, they just laid out what what he already said and what he expected, the rules he expected his examiners to follow at the time. Um, but they were in public for the first time, and that was kind of totally new. And um, it, it did talk about kind of what words were considered mild, medium, you know, strong, coarse language, that kind of thing, and what level of sex violence and drug use and things were accepted at different categories. Um, and the bare bones of the uh, the guidelines have kind of lived through to today's versions of guidelines. They're, they are they are still laid out in much the same way. His job uh, was then taken over by Robin Duval in 1999, uh, who's uh, he wanted to usher in, as well as having written guidelines, a, uh, a new era of kind of openness, accountability, and transparency to the board. And one of the first things he did was create a public consultation process. So rather than just decide what he thought or what the examiners thought people should do, Uh, or people should be allowed to see Um, he started up a process where we would actually go out to the public find out what they wanted and uh, that these numbers here are from the uh, most recent version because that has been repeated every four or five years since then and a new set of guidelines has been written each time in response to the views that the public have given us Um, and so in doing that process they, they gathered a combination of qualitative and quantitative data Um, They did focus groups, questionnaires, town halls. They did a thing called citizens juries, which which uh, is where they got a smaller group of people. They brought them in for four days, um, had experts in uh, film, psychology uh, and examiners and people like that talking to them about all the issues that they faced, showing them clips of what they considered 12 level sex, 15 level sex, violence, drug use and so on. Um, and asked them what they thought about it, why they thought that, what uh, whether they thought, and this is in the questionnaires as well, whether they thought the board was being too lenient or too strict at different levels. Um, and they collated all of this information. In the first uh, public consultation, which was at the time the, the largest public consultation exercise that had ever been undertaken by a content regulator anywhere in the world, um, they had about 4,000 people. Uh, in subsequent ones, it was anywhere between eight and 12,000 Um, and and they gathered all of this information together, and along with their own experience and and, uh, information from experts in various fields, they wrote uh, a second set of guidelines in 2000, and uh, those were based on the results they got from that first public consultation. And this is where I come in. I joined the board in 2001. I was an examiner for eight years. Um, These are some of the examiners I worked with. um, They're a fairly diverse group. all different kinds of ages, genders, backgrounds, uh, languages spoken, because sometimes we would get films in particularly South Asian or East Asian languages. Um, And um, the, the backgrounds, it was a really kind of conscious effort by the board to, to um, hire people from different backgrounds. There were doctors, lawyers, teachers, journalists, filmmakers, authors, uh, civil servants, so it was a, a truck driver, a parole officer, magistrate, um, people fr- who had previously worked in broadcasting, people who were from similar regulatory organisations in different countries, um, and what they really didn't want is to have everyone who f- who thought the same way um, and and approached problems in the same way, uh, because one of the really important parts of what we did was debate. We would have a, an issue that turned out to be on the borderline between two categories. And um, the fact that we came from it from different angles, saw it differently. And, and that meant that we could have a discussion about it. We could, we could look at all of the different issues instead of everyone just all being the same and thinking the same way. It was really important and, and I think a, a very useful part of why the board's decision making did begin. After they started doing public consultations to really reflect the the kind of views of the of the public, rather than kind of impose those views on them. Uh, so when I joined, um, I was trained for three months before being involved in a, a, a single um, classification decision. Um, I was trained by examiners who'd been there for years, and and uh, as time went on, I trained other examiners. Um, A lot of that training involved learning, obviously, about the classification issues that we faced, but also about the laws that those classifications were based on, um, the the kinds of things that had been cut in the past. Most of it really was about precedent, because if you think about it, a person who has a, say, a 12-year-old kid and they watch with their child PG or 12 rated um, films, perhaps, or even you, um, they, they get a sense of what to expect from those categories. And whether they're okay with their kids seeing that stuff and hearing that language and that kind of stuff. So um, part of it is is not subverting that expectation of the public, not having things in those films that they would be upset or um, have a problem with their their children seeing when they've come when they've got used to knowing what's in those categories. And there's a lot of data that says that the that British public uh, parents specifically do pay a lot of attention to what the categories are, certainly at the lower ages. Um and so a lot of that training was watching films that had set those precedents. Um sometimes it was just clips of stuff that that was relevant and that was a borderline issue, and and we looked at why those decisions had been made at the time, how they fitted in with the guidelines, and uh we were given a list of of quite a, a thick stack actually, um, of films to to watch that were important in previous classification decisions. Obviously, everyone coming into this role is already a big film fan. So a lot of the films we'd already seen, but there was a lot of that kind of three months was was spent watching things we hadn't seen or or kind of re- refreshing our knowledge of things that we'd seen, perhaps sometimes quite a lot. Um, so the day-to-day work of actually examining once we'd got through that training process was obviously um, involved a lot of viewing. Uh, so for three and a half days a week, uh, we were we viewed material, um, and that was five and a half to six hours a day. Uh, it didn't look like this. This is actually a couple of real examiners doing the job. And uh, while we watched, we would be taking notes. And what we got to see in that five and a half, six hours a day was completely random. It was assigned to us by a different department. We didn't get to choose what we watched. Um, it could be it, – it always was a mixture of all kinds of different things. It could be um, – You know, a few hours of Teletubbies, um, porn, wrestling, maybe a video game, an episode of The X-Files. Sometimes we got to go down to the cinema in the basement and watch a film that was going to be released uh, in cinemas. Um, There weren't snacks, unfortunately. That's set up for a press screening, that that image. Um, But basically, you didn't know until the day before, really, what you were going to be viewing. Um, When I was at the board... Many things were viewed in pairs. The only things that were viewed solo were things that had already been classified. So for example, if something had been released in the cinema and then it came in to be released on video, um, that was that was viewed solo. Uh, and stuff that had already been on TV was usually solo as well. Um, but everything else was viewed in a pair. And at the end of watching each item, we would um, discuss what we thought the category should be and why. And uh, that could go a number of ways. For the most part, usually the two of us agreed. Um, and then at the end of the day, we would write our reports. Um, we would use our notes to make a list of everything that had happened that could be category defining uh, in the film, TV show, DVD extra, or whatever it was. Um, and um, they would they would have time codes so that people could go back and check if they needed to. Um, and we would put them into context, explain what was going on, describe the, the, the moment Uh, and why we thought it fell at a particular category. Then we would essentially write a paragraph of conclusion saying why we thought the whole work was a particular category and why it would be justified at what we were suggesting. Um, And that would go through and essentially get rubber stamped. If something sounded a bit weird, then a senior examiner might take a look at it. But uh, sometimes we didn't agree. And uh, one of us should thought something should be passed to 12. One of us thought it should be 15 or whatever. So if that happened, usually we'd have a bit of a debate and, and try and convince each other. Um, but if if that didn't work, then it would get passed on to a team of three. Um, so then at least you would hopefully get a tiebreaker and there would be kind of a, a majority um, often if there was a contentious issue or something that even might set a new precedent. Um, that would be taken, uh, well, first of all, it would be seen by senior examiners or possibly the director, but it would also be taken to our weekly examiners meeting. So, as I said, we watched for three and a half days a week, um, half a day, every week was a, an examiners meeting where we all got together and talked about any controversial issues that had come up over the last week. Um, clips would be shown and they would be talked about and put into context and sometimes classification decisions were made at the meeting where we would have a debate and we would have a show of hands and decide on what category something should go out at. A lot of the time it was just for information. It was the decision had already been made and uh, and they were presenting it to you to basically keep up our training so that we kept up to date with any new precedents, any new markers that that could affect our decisions moving forward. Um and that was again really important. We were trying to maintain that consistency so we didn't just kind of have that training and then keep doing the job for years and forget about the the uh, any or not know about any new issues that had come up. Um, other things that that could come out of our discussion might be cuts. Uh, sometimes material needed to be cut and for by far the most common of those would be cuts for category. This is where a distributor really wanted a particular category and they would come to us and say, we need this to be a 12 or whatever. Um, and there would be something in there that didn't fit in that category. So we would tell them what they would need to take out to, to make it that category. Um, sometimes that happened in advance. People would come to us while the film was still being completed. And we would do, um, a thing called advice viewings. I remember sitting in a Sony executive's office, watching uh, ghost rider for advice. Uh, And when he asked me if I liked it, um, I had to lie because it was not good. Uh, On the other end of the spectrum, uh, I also went to Twickenham Studios and watched um, Closing the Ring uh, with Richard Attenborough. And now I can tell people that Richard Attenborough asked for my advice on his final film before releasing it. Um, Compulsory cuts are cuts to material that's not even acceptable at 18 and in in almost all cases, that's because of because uh, it breaches the law. In 2000, one of the things that Robin Duval w- did when he came in was was said that, for, for as far as possible, adults would have the right to choose their own material uh, within the law, and so that meant that that the things that are cut at 18 al- almost always are something which are uh, really potentially harmful for some legal reason or or breach some other law, which I'll talk about in a moment. Um, the the final option uh when cuts wouldn't really address the problem necessarily was rejection this is extremely rare these days uh and even during the time i worked there uh during the eight years i was at the board there were no cinema films rejected and only 22 videos um which were pretty much evenly split um among sexual violence violent porn uh instructions on growing drugs And um, documentaries glorifying kind of real violence or actual death. Um, The fifth day of our schedule was for other work outside of viewing, which supported our job as an examiner. And that could be outreach. So going out to schools, film festivals, uh, giving talks about stuff like this. or dealing with correspondence. So responding to emails or letters that we got from the public, Uh, the examiner who saw the film who classified the film would would respond to any complaints that we got. Uh, Very occasionally, we would respond to praise that we got. Um, It could be keeping up with media effects type research that psychologists were doing, um, or even doing our own research on uh, public attitudes to things like weapons in films, um, or a research project that I was involved in uh, was a long-term study into underage viewing to see to what extent people were seeing material that was categorised at uh, a, um, an age higher than theirs, um, where they were getting that material, where they were having access to it. Um, there was also an opportunity during that time to write new policies if if things came up in examining and, and decisions that were made that we didn't have a written policy for that, that needed to be done. Um, and also, I think the most important thing really was keeping up to date with precedent-setting works. So, Yes, we'd see some things and we'd see clips of things in meetings, but there were inevitably going to be things that we hadn't classified that were controversial decisions or or things that we needed to factor in perhaps going forward. And so some of that time would be used for watching material um, that, that we hadn't otherwise had an opportunity to see. So when we were in those meetings and having those examining discussions with our viewing partners or just making the decisions on our own, what? were the factors that we needed to to look at. Uh, first of all, there was legislation. There's a lot of laws that impacted on what we did, um, but the main ones, really, were the Obscene Publications Act of 1959, uh, which didn't come up a huge amount during my time there, but was we, it required us to kind of be aware of what the, public, what the police um, considered obscene. And it was uh, still a feature of our discussion sometimes. It's a fairly high bar, because according to the law, it requires that a work taken as a whole has a tendency to deprave or corrupt a significant portion of those who see it. So it's I mean that's that's a difficult bar to reach, but um in practice it was more about what the the um prosecution service or or the uh or the police might consider obscene and making sure that that we at least could let um Distributors know that they were they were getting close to that or, or in some cases have to cut things. One that did come up uh, from time to time, unfortunately, was the Cinematograph Films Animals Act of 1937, which is basically the law against animal cruelty. Actually, um, it doesn't specifically legislate against animal cruelty. What it does is it makes it illegal to show any scene that is orchestrated or directed by the filmmaker for the purpose of the film. Um, that involves actual cruelty to animals, that it shows the cruel infliction of pain or terror or the cruel goading of any animal to fury. Um, And sadly, this did come up uh, from time to time. Uh, A lot of older films, particularly, uh, especially westerns, were cut. Um, One interesting film that was discussed with regard to this law was Almodovar's Talk to Her in 2002, where one of the characters in the film is a matador. And so there were some bullfighting scenes in the film. And when we watched it, it looked very much like the actress in the film was involved in those scenes. And um, therefore, obviously, those scenes must have been orchestrated and directed by the filmmaker. Uh, So we talked to the distributor at the time and said, look, this is probably going to be an issue. It's probably going to have to be cut. Um, You know, bullfights are legal in Spain, but that doesn't really make a difference to to our law here on, on film. And if the, the actress was involved, it's, it's obvious that they were orchestrated and, and uh, you know, it, it involved cruelty to animals. But they actually came back to us and provided us with a significant amount of information on how they um, filmed those scenes. And what they did was they went along to a, a training session for a new Matador that was, that was already happening. It was already kind of, they didn't have anything to do with setting it up. Um, and they filmed that happening. Um, and they later on filmed the actress in the ring on her own with no bull in the ring, and they, uh, for some shots, superimposed the actress's face onto the matador. Um, and um, this was in 2002. it's long before deepfakes or anything like that. So we were really pretty impressed that they'd managed to do this, but they they showed us a great deal of, of kind of behind-the-scenes footage, uh, all of the kind of the um, the process of, of how they went about doing it. And they proved to us that essentially they hadn't done anything that contravened this law. So that film went out uncut. Um, the fact that we had the cinematograph films, animals act in 1937, uh, s- says a lot, I think about what British people think about their animals, because we didn't get the protection of children act until 1978, um, and that, again, was an issue that had to be talked about sometimes. Uh, it, we had to occasionally get proof of age. This was an act that presented prevented um, indecent images of children, essentially. Um, but we sometimes had to get proof of age of, of actors uh, or actresses who looked young, um, who were in films or scenes where uh, that would be an issue if they were children. Um, other... Um, laws that came up less frequently were things like the Race Relations Act, uh, laws about indecent exposure, um, even blasphemous libel until it was uh, repealed. Um, but all of those laws and issues had to be balanced with the Human Rights Act of 1998 and the um, the right to freedom of expression. Uh, so it wasn't always as simple as uh, just kind of cutting anything that looked like on face value it might contravene a law. Uh, we had to make sure that we were cutting the absolute minimum amount of material that we could in order to bring that work within the law, uh, in order to to kind of balance that with the filmmaker's freedom of expression, which was also protected essentially by just another law. Um, Beyond legislation, uh, obviously we had to look at the specific classification issues. Um, Now, one of those that you may not necessarily think about uh, when thinking about classification is the theme or tone of a film. This is where it might not specifically have a moment in it where... Um, there's there's some sex or violence or anything like that which causes a problem at particular category, but just how the whole film is generally, what it's about sometimes. Uh, an, an example would be The Others from 2001, which um, there's a couple of jump scares in the film, but there's no violence, no sex, no bad language, no no issues really that would be a problem even at the lowest categories. But it's a very creepy, spooky film about ghosts and, and stuff like that. Um, and so that was past 12 for that, for the tone of the film, essentially. Um, and it, that's a much harder one to, to kind of write down <laughs> in some sense. And, and that's why it became, you know, knowing the precedent, knowing, knowing uh, what other things had been passed in the past uh, at 12 and at PG um, became important. Um, other kinds of themes or topics that, that might be an issue on their own would be treatment of things like race or domestic violence, uh, racism. I mean, or domestic violence, um, and um, those are kinds of things that, that, unless they're treated incredibly carefully and responsibly, th- parents just won't expect to see those issues dealt with in children's films. For example, um, there are there are certainly ways to do it, and there are there are children's films that have controversial issues, um, and and certainly many films at twelve. Uh, I mean, The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas, for example, things like that, that that deal with very controversial, very difficult issues. Um, There's a Bernini film called Life is Beautiful, uh, which which again deals with the Holocaust in a way that is suitable for children. Um, But um, but it's it's complicated and context comes into it a great deal. Uh, Language is an issue which has always been uh, important to British people. and it's a very divisive issue. Some people are offended by words that other people are not offended by. And so it's a difficult one to get right for everybody. Um, and in the, um, public consultations that have happened over time, uh, there has been a shift in, in how much language, bad language use of fuck, for example, people are allowed or, or, or expect to hear or, or think that it's okay for their children to hear at different categories. Um, Context really factors in here again, because you can use the word "fuck" for example in so many different ways that there you can't necessarily just say that's one use of "fuck" that that causes that category. Uh, possibly a bad example because you won't gen you won't get a, any kind of use of "fuck" at PG. Um, there was a time where one use of "fuck" would be okay at 12, and any more than that would be a 15. Um, but that isn't the case anymore. And, it, and that is very much about context. Um, if it's sexualized, if it's uh, aggressive, if it's directed at a person and, and repeated, then again, that might take something to 15. But in some contexts, you will get multiple uses, at, uh, even at 12. Um, the King's Speech was one where I think the consumer advice for that film said several uses of strong language in a speech therapy context. Um, And again, that's because there was no aggression, no direction at someone, no sexualization of it. It was uh, the the word was being used for a particular purpose. And within the context of the film, that was seen as okay for 12. Um, On the other hand, sometimes um, fuck would be a useful way of getting a film a 12 when otherwise it wasn't going to. Like uh, The Avengers, not that Avengers, the one in 1998, which was the movie version of the British TV show. um, That was basically a PG film but they didn't want a PG for it. They wanted a 12. Uh, So they put a fuck in and, and that got it a 12. So that happens um, from time to time. People essentially kind of gaming the system in a way. Uh, There are some horror films, which um, were not scary enough to get an 18 and they wanted an 18 because that's kind of badge of honor for a horror film. And so they would put in some sex that made it an 18. So uh, yeah, that was something that came up from time to time. Uh, Speaking of sex, um, there, that's obviously an issue at, at every category. At the lower categories, it's it's still about sex references, um, which is what took Mrs. Doubtfire to 12. Um, but it, at the upper categories, um, there's there's not very much that will be cut. In the right context, you can have real sex um, on on screen in an 18 non-porn film, um, and and that has happened many times. Uh, drugs are an issue again that. Um, Troubled the British public in in a way that I think was unexpected by the board in the in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and through the public consultations, the board stance on drugs has uh, got stronger. It, uh, the public were more concerned about it than the board were at that time. Um, and. So again, at uh, the lower categories, it's about drug references. Uh, at the higher categories, it's about site of drug use, sometimes site of drug preparation. If it's particularly instructional, it is something that can still even be cut at um, at 18. And if it's particularly glamorous as well, it, it potentially could cause cuts at the higher categories. Um, there was a film called 13 in 2003, which is a very very good, very interesting film about um, essentially kind of a pair of wayward teenagers. Um, and... We really would have liked to have um, passed that film uh, at least at 15 at, the, at kind of certainly not at 18, ideally, because there was a lot in there for teenagers and for parents of teenagers that they could relate to and, and get discussion points out of and, and uh, appreciate, I think. But there was a scene early on of the two leads um, indulging in solvent abuse, and um, it was totally uncritical in every way. They had a great deal of fun. There was no negative effects whatsoever. And unfortunately, we know that solvent abuse is something which can cause serious harm and even kill people the very first time you try it. So um, because of that, without any negative effects whatsoever, negative consequences in the film, um, even though the rest of the film was was really very suitable for 15-year-olds, we we couldn't put that out at less than 18. Um, Violence is obviously one of the issues that people think about when they think about classification um and um one film that came up in this category was uh, the dark knight which was past 12 um to some controversy i think it's fair to say with uh with the 12 guidelines for for violence it's very much about the level of detail that you see you are allowed to see moderate violence uh so long as it doesn't dwell on detail and the Dark Knight really didn't dwell on detail. It's very dark and gritty and and kind of intense in places, but the violence is very impressionistic. There's, there's very little blood. There's very little process detail. And um, it did get a lot of complaints. It got, in fact, it was the most complained about film that year. It got 40% of all of the complaints that the BBFC got that year were about The Dark Knight. But those complaints were... Um, immediately following a 3 day campaign by the daily mail to uh, to complain that the film had got a 12 and that it was unsuitable at 12 and and once that campaign ended the the letters very much dropped off and and what we found by kind of analyzing those letters was that a very small number of them less than 10% had actually taken children to see the film um and ultimately it was um it was a film which was was kind of edited very quickly, very impressionistic, and it, it was a high-end 12, but a reasonably solid one. Uh, horror is something that comes up uh, connected to violence often, but it's more about the levels of gore that you see often. Um, and a film like Hot Fuzz, for example, uh, which you might not think of necessarily particularly in terms of gore, there's a few very gory scenes towards the end, but uh, again, we come back to the context. In a much more serious film, in a film like something like uh, Saw or Hostel or stuff like that, if you if there's a lot of gore, that's going to be a problem and it's going to push a film up to 18. In a film like Hot Fuzz, which is uh, a, a comedy, it's ridiculous in places, and certainly where the gore happened, um, it was very ridiculous. There was huge ridiculous blood spurts, and um, it was it was designed to be funny. And because of that, in that context, it was seen as okay at 15. The final uh, thing I'm gonna talk about is um, one of the other main issues that we looked at, which is called imitable techniques. And this is where um, someone does something or talks about something on screen that uh, if you copied it, if you imitated it, it would be harmful in some way. Now, every examiner at the board had an area of specialism um, be it uh the the 1215 borderline or drug use or whatever that they would perhaps take pay more attention to the classification issues surrounding that uh pay more attention during their their kind of their one non-viewing day of of the week uh, into the research on it and and be more aware of the precedent setting works so if that issue came up in in a a, a work that needed a second team to look at it that examiner would usually be put on that second team. So they'd have a little bit more expertise. One of my areas of expertise at the board was imitable techniques. And that meant that sometimes my job was to figure out um, if, like, if MacGyver made a bomb out of fabric conditioner and a paperclip, if that would, first of all, if it would actually work. And secondly, if in attempting to do it, you could get harmed in some other way. Um, or sometimes it would be the modus operandi of criminals, such as if you could hotwire a car based just on the method that was shown in one episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, One example was the film Fight Club uh, in 1999, where in this scene, Tyler Durden says to the narrator, did you know that if you mix equal parts of gasoline and frozen orange juice concentrate, you can make napalm? That's not true. Um that you just get very orangey petrol, and that's fine. Uh, But there was a film, uh, Rutger Hauer film, where the hero did explain how to make a kind of napalm, homemade napalm, uh, to another character, and that would have worked. And um, the police in that instance asked us to not... um, They basically said it would be good if that wasn't widely dispersed, because a lot of people, a lot of lives are saved because people don't really know how to make an effective Molotov cocktail. And while you can look this stuff up, you can find it on, on the internet, especially these days, and you know, you can find it online if you go looking for it, not putting that information out there in cinemas and, and into people's homes is is potentially a plus. So so that group Gahauer film was was cut and sometimes it was about that. It was about cutting a particular part of the process that if you didn't know about that, that wouldn't work then, or 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 doing something in a way that meant it it wouldn't cause harm. Uh, and this is where I was responsible in part for a kind of offshoot of the Pizzagate conspiracy. <laughs> um, just in case anyone doesn't know, really quick primer on the Pizzagate conspiracy is that uh, it's a conspiracy theory that says that some prominent people, especially in D.C., are running a, a kind of pedophile ring out of the basement of a pizza restaurant, uh, which, as it turns out, doesn't have a basement. Um, and therefore, they think that whenever prominent people talk about pizza in some way or show it on screen or anything like that, that is somehow them hiding in plain sight and, uh, I don't know, expressing support for paedophiles or showing showing that they are a member of this conspiracy or something like that. Um, and uh, Lilo and Stitch in 2002 had a scene where um, the little girl, Lilo, hides from her sister in a tumble dryer. And uh, recently, Lilo and Stitch was put on Disney Plus for streaming and they re-edited the scene. So instead of this, it was this scene here where Lilo instead hides under a table and has a pizza box uh, to kind of block up the hole and, and hide her from her sister. And this went around the internet a bit with people saying, look, this is proof that Disney is part of Pizzagate and they are they have sympathy for pedophiles and they're they're kind of telling you that they I don't know telling you that they support pedophiles in some way. Um and, and what else what what other possible reason could there be for this? How could they could they have put this pizza there if that's not what they're saying? There's no other possible explanation. We've definitely proved it. Well, this was my fault. Because um, in 2002, we, we looked at that scene where Lilo hid in a tumble dryer and unfortunately every year there are a few cases around the world of kids getting into tumble dryers or, or washing machines, hiding or playing in them and being severely injured or sometimes dying. So we took that seriously and we said, no, this, this is a, a, an activity that is presented as safe in this film. It looks fun and, and is fine, but it's actually not safe. And we talked to Disney and said, look, are you sure you want to have this in the film? We don't think it's okay at you. We're probably going to cut it even at PG. Um, and they said, not a problem. We will reanimate it. And this is what they did. Uh, I don't know why they didn't show this version in the US, but this was the UK version. I also don't know why they chose to, to upload the UK version to Disney+. Plus. But this was edited 20 years ago almost. Um, and And it's not, as far as I know, Disney don't support that kind of thing at all. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you, Jim. That was absolutely fantastic. Uh, so straight into the Q and a with obviously the best question of the night, because it was asked by me, um, what was the worst thing that you had to watch Jim?
0: Uh, okay. Well, I had to watch some pretty, pretty bad stuff, stuff that, that did end up getting rejected and, and for very good reason. Um, but to be honest, the only thing I ever had to look away from was the Jackass movie. Um, because there's a scene where they're giving themselves and each other paper cuts in like the webbing between their fingers. And that freaked me the fuck out. I couldn't, I couldn't keep facing the screen. Fortunately, we were watching it in a pair. So my, my viewing partner was able to make sure nothing else was happening. But yeah, that's the only thing I ever had to look away from.
1: And I think with a lot of these things, it's, uh, it is very subjective as to what is, yeah, absolutely. To You most people would find that. Quite minor for you that was like no 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 get me away nope (laughs) um no interesting um right we've had a couple of questions around this topic of um becoming an examiner so the first question comes from anonymous and is uh, what are the experience requirements to become an examiner
0: so um as i mentioned there's a huge range of different backgrounds that examiners had um, it has changed more recently. Now they're not even called examiners. They're called compliance officers, I think, um, and, and the, the criteria have changed. So I don't know exactly how it is now, but basically um, it was mostly an interest in film uh, with something else to back up. Some reason why you should also do it. I had a degree in psychology. I'd studied media effects research and and stuff like that, so that and and I also had worked at Channel Five, um, so I, I kind of came came from broadcasting, psychology, uh, kind of a bit of of child development, bit of media effects. So I had that that background, but but really sometimes it was you know, uh, as I said, a parole officer, for example, we had so so working with kind of, uh, you know, young offenders and things like that was was a benefit in some ways, um, teaching. Uh, there, there was there were lots of different aspects um, and everyone brought their own kind of uh, areas of expertise and specialism to the job and then hopefully developed kind of skills as they went along
1: so you mentioned the lorry driver earlier what was his special set of skills I
0: don't, be, I, I don't know to be honest I don't know I, it, not because he wasn't very skilled or, or very good at the job it was just that was the job that he'd been doing before it wasn't he wasn't you know someone who had had Taken what would seem to be a more traditional route. So,
1: um, another follow-up question comes from anonymous. What's the salary like for examiners? Uh,
0: again, it's changed. It was pretty good um, when I was there. Uh, it was, um, I mean, starting I think around forty grand. Um, so yeah, that was that was pretty good. Uh, it, was, it was well worth doing for a few years. But um, they have, I think, large. They've basically cut it in half um, in wow. in the last few years with changes to the job and changes to to the requirements for for examiners. But part of that, I think, was to encourage people who were perhaps sometimes farther along in their careers um, and had you know a range of different experiences to to come and do the job because if you if you don't pay very much, then you're not going to get people who are you know
1: you're not going to get psychologists. You're not going to get doctors. Get and and like, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I imagine certain things like doctors in particular would have certain insight into like medical procedures and that kind of thing as yeah. to whether they've just made this extra bloody just for the sake of yeah, it. Yeah. Or... And there was
0: always someone to turn to with with a question, basically, yep. that might have some expertise.
1: And I mean, when you mentioned the initial salary, I was about to ask Jack's question as my own question and say, how do I get a job at the BBFC? I want to watch films all day.
0: <laughs> but let's go with Jack's question and go, yeah. how do you get? I a mean, job there, there is there is a there is a vacancy section on the BBFC website. In fact, I, I recommend the BBFC website to anyone who's at all interested in any of this stuff. They have um, they have a lot of. Uh, PDFs on there of their previous um, annual reports and the rec- the research that they look at when they're doing their, you know, the research they've done as well. And um, a lot of case studies of specific films um, to, to explain why they got the category they got and, and why that might be. But but one of the things they have is a vacancies page. Um, there's no openings at the moment, for example. <laughs> um-
1: Steve asks um, for imitable techniques. Uh, critters rated 15 shows using an aerosol with a flame to create a flamethrower, which I then totally imitated. What's the cutoff?
0: Yep, yeah, I I also totally did that. I think I saw it in Live and Let Die. Um, yes. uh, Live and Let Die, it has to be said, is a PG, Um, but that was uh, and that was a cigar with a with a an aerosol. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean that that was prior to the overhaul and public uh, consultations of the thing that was in the 70s um i think that that kind of thing would probably be allowed at 15 and 18 um it's it's more about um, hoping that children won't do it in a way that is likely to cause a problem obviously i don't know what you might have done at 15 if you saw if you were even 15 when you saw that um uh, and if you'd had done it in a safe way i i at least did it in the garden i didn't kind of do it you know, near a curtain or something like that. So
1: I just I I reasonably, field.
0: Re, you know, sensible.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I'm a school playing field from
0: memory. Um, Andrew asks,
1: in your time as an examiner, what was the film that was the hardest to agree on a classification for?
0: I mean, there were a lot of films which we just didn't agree on classifications for. Um, I mean, ultimately someone made the decision there was, um, it, it either went to the entire board and we, we took a, a kind of show of hands or, or the director ultimately just made the decision. Um, one fairly prominent one was the born identity, which ended up being the first 12 A. I Um, I was on the first team for that. And both of us, uh, on that team were absolutely of the opinion that should have been a 15. Um, there was, there was, in in our opinion, sufficient dwelling on the detail and and uh, process of violence that um, that a 15 was warranted. Um, the, uh, I think I remember in rightly that the distributor in that case requested an, a kind of appeal viewing and, and that it would be seen by more people because they really wanted the, the 12. And we, the the number of cuts we would have needed to make, I thought to make it a 12 would were over the top. Perhaps um, it was viewed by by a couple of other teams and the director at the time and and ultimately decided on a 12. um i i I disagreed with that but that's the thing you don't win every game so
1: it is down to a consensus view and as we said earlier one thing that you can find really upsetting or really disturbing somebody else might go what what are you talking about yeah i don't see that um The next question is going to be a little series of questions because we've got a number of questions around the same topic. And having spoken to you during the break, I know you have a bit of an insight into this specifically, um, which is around computer games. So the first question is Anonymous asks, how does rating a video game work? How long would it take? Do you have to play 100% completion to make sure you didn't miss a particularly gruesome murder?
0: Okay, so... Uh, I, I led the team that classified video games and I would have, if, if it had been a longer talk, I might have gone into detail on this, but, um, basically there were only, I think uh, the most part eight of us who, who actually were gamers, um, during my time there. And and so they didn't expect examiners who didn't know how to play video games to classify video games. Um, because you're coming at it with, you know, a lot of first of all, knowledge and skills and and actually being able to just get through the games. Unlike some other classification bodies, we did actually play every game. Um, we were given cheat codes often, uh, God mode if possible, but anything that could help us get through. Uh, we were sometimes given saved games, so we could we could skip between different levels. Um, but the answer really is that practically we accepted that we would never be able to see everything in a game. Certainly for some games, uh, just playing each of the missions in I think GTA four probably would take about 50 hours and that's not counting all of the other stuff you can do. Um, So generally it would be a day uh, with two examiners and, and we'd play as much as we could. We would get a sense of what the game mechanics were. So what you were, what you were able to do and what you were being asked to do by the game. Would you both play the game or would one of you play one of you watch? or take it in turns. Take it in turns. Um, Yeah. Um, And And so yeah you get a sense of of what the game's about and what what the general tone and and um the type of things you're able to do a game for example like mass effect which was a a kind of controversial game because i mean it was incredible sprawling game that you could do all kinds of different things one of the things you could do given the right decision tree of kind of options that you chose was trigger a sex scene um And, and that caused problems in the US didn't cause that much of a problem for us because the sex scene was reasonably mild. Um, if that sex scene had been interactive, if you'd been able to kind of do something during, during the sex, that might've been a problem because no parent wants to go in and into a room and see their 12 year old simulating sex in a game but what happened was it was like a conversation tree of things where if you said the right things that happened and it was a cut scene. So for us, it was about what the, what was the level of detail in that scene? And that was 12 level detail. There really wasn't anything. So, um, yeah, it it was playing the game to the extent that we could understanding how the game worked, what it was asking you to do and what kinds of things it showed. And, and often the, the, um, the distributors would would let us know about kind of if there was anything that they thought was particularly strong because it was never in their interest to to kind of play it and and you know yeah they might get a bit of publicity out of it but equally there was a possibility that the game could be recalled and they'd have to um take it off the shelves if there was a serious problem that that they'd kind of tried to get past us in some way
1: and also if they've misled you then you're more likely to be harsher on them the next time not because sure. you're just going you've been dicks to me i'm going to be a dick to you more because you go well, I don't know what they've hidden in here. They hid things from me last time. The, yeah. t- the tone of the game is a fifteen eighteen. Well, actually, because I don't know what they've hidden in it, I'm going to say it's an 18, just because they've probably sure. hidden something else from me. Um, Lee Ashcroft asked specifically about the game Manhunt 2. Why was it banned? Why was it eventually classified? Did the BBFC get it wrong?
0: Manhunt 2 was an interesting one. Um, we classified Manhunt at 18, uh, and in fact, I, th- I can I can talk about this because it's it, when I when I was interviewed several times about this. It was sub judice at the time, so I couldn't actually talk about much of it. But um, I went to Rockstar's offices along with the director of the board at the time, David Cook, um, and and my senior examiner to watch. Uh, scenes from the game and and have Rockstar kind of walk us through some stuff for Manhunt 2 uh, before it was getting ready to be classified because they wanted advice. They wanted to see where we sat on it and, and what we thought about it. At the time, we all said it was, it was 18. And um, we didn't really have much of a problem with it By the time it came into the board, not much had changed about it. And the examiners who saw it first, um, said that they thought it was eighteen, but because it was definitely going to be a controversial decision because manhunt itself was um it did go to uh, another team and to and the director had another look at it by that point something um, in his thinking had changed and um and the decision at that point was that it was i think the phrase was unremittingly bleak and callous um and and that. It was unsuitable for classification. Um, they then uh, resubmitted uh, with some of the kind of stronger moments cut out. And um, but but the, because we'd already essentially given them the ruling that it was the tone generally of the game that was the problem, the cuts they'd made didn't address that. So then, even though it was by this point really a clear, clearly an eighteen. Uh, we couldn't go back on the reject because they hadn't addressed the reason for rejecting it in in making the cuts um so yes it was appealed by the, under the uh the um video appeals committee at the time i believe they got the 18 um and and yes if i had to say i would say that the BBFC did make a mistake in that classification i don't think it was um it was a reject really do you think you've made, you've made any mistakes in the past. Oh, um, absolutely! I'm sure I have. Yeah, um, I can't think of any right now, but yeah, I mean the thing is, as as you say, you have we are viewers as well as examiners. We have we have a, an emotional reaction to stuff that we see. Um, some stuff feels stronger than than um, others. Um, yeah, I can't I can't think of an example that, that I kind I, of regretted particularly.
1: I'd also imagine but, that your frame but, of mind at the time will affect. Sure, you know if you've just gone through something that particular thing might hit you harder than it would have done normally yeah
0: absolutely yeah
1: uh, but again working in pairs that probably helps to uh, counteract some of your own biases that are creeping in
0: Hopefully, from yeah that's part of that and also part part of the benefit of doing in pairs is, is kind of emotional support as well because because some of the stuff you see is pretty nasty and and kind of not not having to do that in a room on your own is a benefit.
1: I mean, I know we've heard about this with Facebook reviewers, um, with what uh, the content moderation for Facebook, which is uh, outsourced, and them talking about the lack of support they get in terms of the mental trauma of some of the things that get reported to them, and they have to sit there and watch it. Yeah. and it, I mean, the stories coming out of there are horrific, and I can imagine. Um, yeah. It's like a,
0: no, well, we we did at one point they they did make us make a therapist available to us if we. Needed one, uh, which the the main outcome of that was a an article or a, a small piece I think in the Times, uh, which the headline was Dawn to Desk, Dawn to Dusk Sex Put Sensors in Therapy, um, which I've still got somewhere. But um, yeah, but I mean it was it was we, um, yeah, you had to be reasonably robust to do the job, um, and and yeah, we had that support network of of other examiners we could uh at any point pause something and walk away and come back to it um there were there were techniques in place to to make it copable with
1: um so carrying on from the computer game topic um igor asks are the rules consistent across media are games films short videos song lyrics porn are they all judged by the same standards
0: they are largely judged by the same standards, although there are differences um, that are inherent because of the media. With games, for example, when you are talking about frequency of strong language, if um, again, it, at, certainly at the times where you would only be allowed one or two uses of "fuck" in a twelve film, if someone on a street corner in a game says "fuck," and you can walk back and past past back and forth past that person multiple times and hear it each time. Um, then, yeah, that's going to possibly put it up to a 15. Um, if there are instructional details of how to to do something potentially dangerous in a film, but it's kind of quick and and done, then that might be one category. Whereas if, you're, if your mission in the game is to do that and it shows you how to do it and that would work in real life, again, that could potentially be a, another category. They're, they're very different ways of experiencing media. And so, yeah, they they can mean that that um the category is different with film and video the 1994 criminal justice and public order act amended the video recordings act to require us to pay particular attention to harm through viewing in the home um and essentially that meant largely that um there was there was less potential for for Definitely restricting it outside of the hands of children, so there was potential for even adult material to get into the hands of children. Um, that was overturned by a legal case later in the two thousands. Um, but uh, also the fact that you can stop and rewind and watch something again, uh, again, especially for instructional stuff, um, made video potentially more dangerous for some elements than a film. If you go into the cinema, you can't, you know, you watch it and it's done. Yep. Can't um, right. so, I mean, yeah, can't rewind. So yeah, there,
1: there, there would. Were... Video video games you can also change the angle so that if you can't see what's going on from somewhere where well, you can watch it from a different angle and that might give yep. you more
0: information yeah it depends uh depends on the mechanics of the game and 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 how that works but yeah absolutely that's another thing that could could have an effect
1: um carrying on in this same topic we've got uh, Steelwolf, also known as don is asking is animation judged by the same criteria as live action and if not what criteria are they judged on
0: i would say yes they are judged the same um although that that is based on the fact that all the judgments include context so so if it's like 2d animation and like cell animation it's it's unlikely to look as scary gory sexy as a live action person um if it's, so it depends on the, the style of animation. I mean, what I would say is there are there are there's um Japanese animations, for example, that that was rejected. Uh, there's a, a film called Uritsuka Doji 4, Legend of the Overfiend, which uh, I believe was rejected. Um and again, I think mostly the Japanese animation that was rejected was was about sexual violence and stuff like that, which is is still a um in terms of media effects, most of the most robust Evidence for there potentially being a danger to to society or to the individual through watching some material comes in the social uh, sexual violence area. Um, for every piece that says violent films make people violent, there's another piece that says no, they don't. Um, and if you look at the data and and like go into the the um, research that's been done and kind of see what the ends end numbers are and all of that kind of stuff, that it, it doesn't really hold up. Except for when you get to sexual violence where there is more robust data. So that has always been or has been taken more seriously in the last couple of decades and and I suspect will continue to be so. Um so so where it's content that leads to to rejections, that's usually what what it is. And that is true of animation as of live action stuff.
1: Um so I'm gonna sort of tie that question into another question, um, with by me saying that. The other thing with animation is that it's very easy to blur things in animation and blurring things in animation for comedic value can work very well when you know exactly what's behind that blurring and they're just doing it to make fun out of senses which um happened specifically um on i think it was south park but i think family guy might also have done it um around the viewing of muhammad and This links into the next question, which is, how would the BBFC handle a film that contained a depiction of the Prophet Muhammad?
0: Um, It's a question I don't know the answer to, Um, but my suspicion is that it it would be treated in the same way as any other person. I don't think that they... uh, I mean, there wouldn't be much point in just raising the category because it's either on screen or it isn't, and that's the issue. I'd be very surprised if they cut um that at 18 um i again it's possible i don't know what their current stance would be it's not an issue that came up when i was there but um but i'd be very surprised if that was the way that it was treated i think uh i think yeah i think think it would also have much
1: of an effect interesting to be the fly on the wall on the director's office wall when Mm -hmm. he's having that discussion with the team and discussing exactly what they think i think it'd be a very interesting conversation um, I also think it would be a very publicized conversation. Um, Garnet asks, uh, do you know if other countries apo- approach film classification in a similar manner or are they vastly different to the BBFC?
0: I would say that the BBFC is, is these days at least probably the most transparent, um, and, um, but different countries have different, uh, levels of kind of connection to the industry itself um, and, and are viewed differently. I mean, the MPAA, for example, in America, um, they, they are not viewed with kindness by the industry much. And, uh, and they only do cinema films. There's no real, uh, classification for videos in the U S. Um, and I mean, there's the Italian film board have always traditionally been extremely, um, liberal in what they allow um, and, and quite political in places as well. There's there, yeah, there's, there's differences and there's differences I think also because, because the societies are different. Um, because what, you know, when we looked at what British people think it's different to what French people think, you know, the, the, um, British people traditionally are more uptight about sex than, than some Europeans, for example. Um, so yeah, we're going to treat things differently um, in terms of how they go about the job, I, I suspect most do it in much the same way.
1: Um, Dave M asks, um, what issues were the hardest to agree amongst examiners? Was this usually consistent or different examiners have particular bugbears?
0: Definitely individual examiners had their own things that they found particularly troublesome or, or um, sometimes wished could be at a different category. Um we were all involved during our time there in, in in rewriting sets of guidelines so so those kinds of things would come up for debate during those periods um issues that caused a lot of debate um i mean it to to some extent everything i can't think of anything that really stands out as as being a particularly debatable topic um there was there was all it's it was There was a lot of debate around the borderline of between different categories around whether something was okay um you know right at that pg-12 borderline or the 12-15 borderline um and um yeah and and people had different views on that so so for every issue i think we we talked about that a lot and um but yeah i can't think of one that that was specifically something that always caused a problem um How were the pairings done for
1: the uh, examiners? Did they sort of come up with somebody more liberal and somebody more conservative, or was it just random? How were the what, sorry? Um, Pairings of the... pairs. Oh,
0: right. Oh, no, it was completely random. Completely random. So you could end up with two people. Um, The only thing... Yeah, if... uh, Because I mentioned we had some films that would be from Bollywood, for example. uh, So we would always have a member of the the Hindi-speaking examiners, for example, on there, um, but not two so it would always be one person who was who was not from that background and one person who who understood the culture of the film as well as the language and then they kind of subtitled for the they would they would uh, interpret for okay. for the non hindi speaking examiner um, so yeah where that was um, the case then then there would be a, you know a, a kind of a waiting of the randomness in that direction but no for 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 average stuff it was completely random and, um, yeah, you, you knew who you were going to be viewing with before you knew what you're going to be viewing. Okay. Um, and, uh, and the, the, they were done separately. Um, the only thing that, that, where it was changed was, uh, as I mentioned in kind of second teams where, where, a, a something had already been seen and was con- controversial for a particular reason, then, then someone who, who worked in that area particularly would be put on that team.
1: Um, Garnet again asks, um, were you exempt from the Exem Publications Act for your initial screenings, or were, and were you required by law to report anything that could transgress transgress
0: it? I don't I'm not Oh, do you mean like when for the fact that we saw it? Okay. Yeah. Um That's a good question. <laughs> I I my understanding at least is that at the time that we were seeing it, it hadn't been published. so so the obscene publications act i i don't I don't recall the exact wording of the bill. Um, but i but I think that it that the work had to have been published in order to technically break the law so so we were we were as we were an early part of that process, yeah essentially. um, so I don't think it was an issue and no, we didn't we didn't uh, report stuff because. We were telling them that they weren't allowed to to put it out there,
1: essentially, and it hadn't been broadcast, and therefore it wasn't in breach of that yeah. until they published it, which they wouldn't do because they wouldn't be allowed to because you told them not to. Exactly. Um, and on a follow up to that, um, anonymous asks: Are you any under any kind of NDA for what you watch?
0: Um, yes. <laughs> um, there were there were many times where. Um, there was like an embargo of information really, rather than an NDA so much. It was it was about when uh things, for example, like the first Harry Potter film came in, um, there were there were security guards that brought that and and stood to make sure no one else got to go in and see it other than the examiners. <laughs> I mean,
1: you'd understand um, it. I mean,
0: certain films, the plot twists themselves are the film. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean there's it was there was a, an expectation of confidentiality from from the clients. Uh, which is completely reasonable. Um, so yeah, we wouldn't have talked about anything. And and in fact, the when the BBFC put out their decisions on what um, films contained and what categories they they were at, it would be within a certain period of the uh, release of the film, so that there wasn't you know problems there.
1: Um, Hassan um, asks: um, I once heard there are British rules against subliminal messages. Does that apply apply to movies? And were there any cases?
0: There are cases of subliminal images in films, but it's it's not. There was a rumor in the sixties of uh, if you put kind of drink Coke, eat popcorn uh, for a frame in a film, then you, then people will leave the cinema and go and buy a Coke and some popcorn. Um, that that was never really true. It was never the 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 apparent research that was done on it was either i can't remember if it was faked or just extremely poor research um but it was it was never really a thing that said um there are films which contain single frames of um problematic material uh fight club is one that that Kind of flags it up. They they talk about it. Tyler Durden mentions it, and then there are multiple frames th- later on throughout the film that that show the kinds of things he was talking about after describing the process. Um, there's an Al Pacino film. I forget the name. I th- it could be Panic in Needle Park, but there's others uh, as well um, that that had used a similar technique. Has um, had it individual frames of things. Yeah, that's an issue. And and if those single frames caused um, a category issue then the category would be decided based on those unless the distributor wanted to take them out but not because of worries about people being subliminally affected so much as just it's it's material that's in the thing that we've been asked to classify yeah.
1: did you have the opportunity to pause and go back on things
0: on video absolutely yeah uh, on uh, film we had there's a there was a separate machine in another room that if we if we needed to look at something again, the film, cause it literally, it came in reels of film. And yep. so we had a couple of projectors in the projection booth and, and um, yeah, they couldn't cause of um, basically if you stop a film in front of a bulb, even safety Good. film, it, yep. it, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't catch light these days, fortunately, but it will destroy the film. So um, yeah, they, um, uh, they would put it onto a, a another um, machine. And cause we'd noted which reel it was and which, uh, which, which, moment through the reel we could we could scroll through and look at it again
1: um andrew asks a question that's sort of been asked already but i'm gonna add a bit to it um so does watching all sorts of films including some difficult material have an emotional toll on examiners and their health which is sort of covered a little bit already did people leave because of it as well
0: um I think I know of one person who left because partly because of it. Uh, I, I don't think she was particularly happy just generally at, at the board. Uh, so I, I think it was, a, it was a factor that led into the consideration. Um, but yeah, it was, it was an issue that, um, the, the interview process was intense and, and featured a reasonable amount of quite problematic material in that process to, to, before we got to the point where they, they were kind of seeing if we were right to do the job. So, so that if that was going to put people off, it did, I'm sure. Um, and initially when I started in 2001, the, the kind of soft rule was that it was a five-year job. And, and I think up to that point, most people were kind of either moving on or doing something else in, within five years. It got stretched, and I know people who were doing it for more than twelve years. Um, but but that was the idea. The theory was that you know if if this kind of stuff affects people, it must affect us as well. I I think the fact is there's there's some truth to that probably, but also we were watching it in a very specific context. Um, a lot of the the more problematic stuff, a lot of the um, the uh, adult material, the uh, violent stuff that was really Potentially traumatizing in a way um, was was watched with other people in the context of of looking at it for particular reasons. It wasn't experienced in the same way as someone does, you know, sitting at home or with a, with a video or in the cinema. Um, and it was uh, especially if it was looked at in meetings, for example. It was it was a completely different kind of environment. Yeah. So, and yeah. I mean,
1: it was it also wasn't all of it. That wasn't the whole job you were also no, absolutely. Um, watching no, a lot of some light-hearted, <laughs> you know, some stuff that, is it a PG or is it a 12? It's a lot Not, of is
0: it... movies that I wouldn't have chosen to watch as well. <laughs> are
1: you, you going to tell us the other story that you told us during the break about your favourite uh, film that you got to
0: watch? My favourite, what was that? Cars. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I had I, I classified the Blu-ray of Cars, uh, which is my, my least favourite Pixar film. I love Pixar films generally, but... For, for reasons we could go into, but I won't. I don't like cars. Um, and the Blu-ray of Cars has obviously the film. Uh, it also has audio commentaries of the film. It has text commentaries. It has like six or seven different versions of the film, and then loads of features. And you have to watch everything. And so I was watching Cars for a good three days. And there's a point at which you think, oh my god, they're, they're, I'd give me something really nasty to watch instead. I'd rather do that.
1: Yeah. It, again yeah uh it, it's not the easiest job sometimes there are challenges including <laughs> watching three days of cars
0: uh-huh.
1: um serdar asks um is there pressure for more diversified categorization eg issues related to culture identity racism lgbt lo- issues etc
0: uh yeah there is that's definitely something which is considered um and i think um it was introduced into the guidelines. I can't remember if it was the last set, which, which was 2019, or the previous set, which was 2014, I think. Possibly even the 2010 guidelines. But it was introduced as a specific category issue, uh, discrimination and how it's handled on screen. Um, yes, discriminatory language, racial epithets, things like that are treated as, as language, as, as strong language, um, and treated harshly. Um, and, and a lot of how racism, discrimination or, or things like that are, are, um, allowed at the lower categories would be based on the treatment of them, based on the context, if they're disapproved of, um, you know, how it, how it plays out in the whole work.
1: Could things get removed just based on their theme in terms of if it is, um, a pro, um, white supremacy
0: film? Would that absolutely. have it be? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the Race Relations Act is still is still a part of what the board considers at, at eighteen, and and yeah, hate speech would not be allowed in a film, uh, in in a context where it's where that is what's being glorified or being pushed as as the right thing to do. So yeah, absolutely, it could make a difference even at I think eighteen.
1: There are some fantastic films out there containing racism, sure. but that's they're not it's glorifying the it. It's exactly. I mean, um, uh, Malcolm X. Um, yeah. Am I getting the right name? Yeah,
0: no, American History X. Oh, American History X. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It,
1: you know, very strong. I mean, that's strong. problematic
0: for 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 lots of reasons. Um, but yes, there's a there's a fairly nasty um, attack scene yes, in Yes, there that, is. Um, yes, which which I think was category defining on its own. Um, and uh, and then at the level that that was taken to, the, the racism was seen to be a, you know an acceptable part of that. Yeah. or yeah if that's the right yeah, way to yeah
1: thought. no it's uh, again it's not glorifying it so it yeah. is about um yeah actually that gruesome attack is far more of an issue than the context of the racism because the racism yeah. has not being glorified
0: no it's interestingly pretty, pretty clearly denounced
1: yep um Alastair asks um, what's it like having to classify actual pornography or does the bbfc no longer do that
0: they do they do do it still uh, it's it's actually about 25% of what you see uh so or at least it was when i was there i don't know what the the numbers are these days but um it's pretty boring to be honest it really is very boring (laughs) because because it goes on for a long time and um for the most part that it's it's the material that gets cut the most because there's there's 18 porn and there's r18 porn um 18 is the is um stuff you can buy on video and dvd in the high street R18, you can only buy uh, in a licensed sex shop if it's on video or DVD. And that's basically hardcore stuff, the softcore stuff. Stuff Channel 5 might have shown of, of an evening would be would be 18. Um, obviously, everyone gets online these days, so I don't really know why people are still going to licensed sex shops. But, um, yeah, the, the stuff, the 18 stuff. They always tried to fly as close to the wind as possible, so there was there were a lot of category cuts for that. So sometimes it was it was very um, clinical and and just kind of looking at whether this angle means that they could possibly not really be doing it, or whether it's obvious that they're really doing it. Um, and and that's what that's the point at which you need to make the cut. Um, whereas Ferrari team, the cuts were more to do with um, them getting potentially violent or harmful in various ways or non-consensual in some uh, instances so so that was less less clinical more upsetting sometimes but um yeah it's 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 about watching for that borderline the whole time
1: i know that, uh, Pardon me. there was some discussion in the chat earlier about how uh, it seemed a little bit weird to go to work and sit in a room with another person and sit and watch porn all day it's pretty uh, weird yeah, it's um, not not your normal day. Um, no. uh, yeah, okay. Uh, moving on, um, you use the words uh, depraved and corrupt, depraved and corrupt in the uh, talk, and anonymous would like to know what exactly does that mean. In it's the- great
0: question. I'd like to know what that means too. It's <laughs> it's it's the wording of the Obscene Publications Act. Uh, they they do. Clarify actually in the Obscene Publications Act, they say uh, any any work taken as a whole that has a tendency to deprave or corrupt, i.e., make morally bad. Um, that really a, helps. A significant proportion of those who are likely to see it. So yeah, that's what it means. It means it will make you morally bad. Um, yeah, it's 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 pretty much impossible to um, to nail that down. <laughs> And, and so the application of the OPA in, in practice is very much about what are the kinds of things that the Crown Prosecution Service are likely to uh, bring a, a case against. Um, and those those things get cut or or sent back to the distributor. So it's interpreting that is a folly, really.
1: <laughs> OK, uh, Alistair asks, um, how many films are still unrated slash banned by the FBI? BBFC, and how often does that
0: happen? Um, if you're talking about specifically films, I don't know a number, but in over the last probably 30 years, I would say it's single figures. Um, obviously, a lot were, were banned prior to that in in James Furman's time, in in uh, John Trevelyan's time and and going back then and and if those films have since been um resubmitted a lot of them have have then been unbanned and given a classification i don't know what the what the number is for films that were rejected and have never been um resubmitted or never been classified i believe there's a wikipedia page on that though um uh, and I I would expect it to be in the region of kind of maybe fifty something like that. But it's it's not not a massive number because a lot of if there's any money in it, distributors put the put the banned films back into circulation once they could.
1: And also um, potentially, if it's a banned film, you will you as the classifiers will be giving them information on why. Potentially yeah, they potentially just usually, cut a few uh, scenes and yeah. go, actually fine. We can cut down the gratuitous violence or we can uh, stop seeing the head rolling down the street. Um, we can, and then playing football. We'll just
0: leave it at the head getting cut yeah, off. I mean, certainly uh, over the last 30 years, it, it would be um, a rejection um, would not have been given for something that could have been cut. Um, if, if, there was material in a in a film which which was really problematic and needed cutting we would recommend cutting that material and say you can have an 18 if you do that. Um, the only, the things that have been cut um, are, are things where the whole work is problematic for the for usually the same reason. I mean to give you a quite mild example, there was a slew of films in 20, 2005 I think uh, videos these were not cinema films that were um, about how to grow weed. Um, and and that was against the law and there was you know essentially that that the the because that was against the law we rejected the the works because that was all it was about so and you can't um, cut a bit um, there was of nothing that and go, could, oh. yeah there was nothing that would make that an, an okay film at 18 at the time uh, i don't know that they would even be cut now um but yeah things like that or some some films that were just a, a repetition of, of actual scenes of people dying, for example, um, to be honest, some of those, depending on the context and the presentation, did get classified at 18. There are films like that out there, but there are also films that were cut, uh, rejected for that reason. And the, the reason they were rejected was because of the constant focus on it and cutting any individual moment wouldn't have made a difference.
1: Um, Anonymous asks, um, why did Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan, get a 15 rating originally, then go down to a PG. And how often does reclassifying occur?
0: So uh, Star Trek II, um, this is one of the great case studies on the BBFC website. So you should look at the BBFC because they'll give you more information than me. But according to them, the the film was actually passed A uh, in 1982 because it was passed in May of 1982 and the new categories didn't come in until later in that year um so it wasn't technically a 15 at the time uh, and then when that cut was released on video it was passed pg um because that was what 10 years later so um the rules had changed <laughs> essentially on on what those uh those those things that were a problem at the time or would par- well in fact it, it, there was there was only ua um, um, and double a and x at the time so so a was essentially pg really yeah uh, but it was cut for a it wasn't past uncut they they there was a um apparently a shot of a slug crawling bloodily out of Chekhov's ear um that was cut um but an, an uncut aa was proposed apparently so yeah look at the bbfc website it's got some good stuff on there
1: so um, the films that were classified as um, A or um, were they all eventually reclassified into the modern standards or were they automatically regraded to a...
0: No, it's only if they were resubmitted. So so there
1: are um, films that are still... Thing...
0: Well, in on on film, yes. So theoretically, and it would be a weird situation, I don't know how they'd work it. I don't actually know. It's a good question. I don't know if they could release a film at A now. Um, because it was passed A before. Um, but video, uh, the the new system of UPG 1518 and so on had come in before the Video Recording Act. So videos have always been based on basically the same system. Um, and and again, the 94 Criminal Justice and Public Order Act gave the BBFC the right to reclassify videos if necessary, if they were resubmitted and, and increase the rating, because before that, they basically kind of had to live with the precedent. Um, but it was, again, only on the basis that viewing in the home might have greater harm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's films that were passed at lower ca- or, or earlier categories aren't automatically um, upgraded or, or changed to the newer category. They'd have to be resubmitted. I'm really just more.
1: thinking of cinemas that play classic films and there are the sure. cinemas out there. Potentially there are films out there being played as A's
0: or as... Uh... I, I. I would be surprised if um they're not resubmitted or or, or many of those have been resubmitted in in the past um i mean i know that i i saw um the uh dr jekyll and mr hyde from the 30s um when i was there for for a cinema release um and downgraded it from i think it was an x to to pg it was very nearly a u (laughs) wow
1: Um, we are getting on a little bit, so we've got, um, we're going to try and limit it to a couple more questions because it is now 10 to 9 already and we've kept you for a couple of hours already. So Um, Hot Fuzz loses one of its funniest scenes whenever it's shown on TV, even when shown late at night when Nick Frost says the C word. What's the reasoning for this?
0: Uh, Well, the rules for TV are different to the rules for film. Um, And the answer to that is I don't really know. I don't know why they would do that because I don't think that's necessarily even the only use of that word in the film i think there might be might be 3 i'm pretty sure there's 3 uses in in hot fuzz um arguably one of them is written down but um but yeah the 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 rules are different for tv and and it may be as simple as that's the version they were given by the distributors um, or it may be that that is a cut that the tv channel decided to make um, because they were showing it at an earlier time at one point and they showed the same version. Many reasons they could do that. But no, it's, uh, the, the rules are, they're related because they're based on the same kind of research, but they're different for different yeah. mediums. Um,
1: Steve asked a really interesting question, one that I'm fascinated by. How do you classify something like a pantomime, which often has lots of sex references, but they go over the heads of children?
0: Well, for the most part... Um, that would still be allowed at a child's uh, category. Um, I mean, if you look at any of the the Carry On films, most of those are PG probably, I think. Um, And uh, in fact, Mrs. Doubtfire, which was originally passed 12 by the board, um, had only a couple of things cut in order to make it a PG, and there's still a great deal of sex references in that. Um, the, 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 the The ruling for that and the reason why they passed it PG was that kids wouldn't understand them. They wouldn't know that they were sex references.
1: And there's a lot of cartoons out there where there are sex references that if as, if you watch them with your kids or with yeah. your nieces and nephew you watch them, you're laughing at different parts of the kids. The Absolutely. kids are laughing at the inane jokes, the, you know, really innocuous ones. And then the adults are like, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. means something else. <laughs> um, Anonymous asks, does the reliance on uh, precedent risk conserving outdated moral attitudes, easy views on same-sex affection, has changed a lot in the last decade?
0: I can I, yeah I can see how you could think that but no um because precedent precedent is a starting point um and uh, where where situations shift and the way people think about things shifts again along with the, every 4 to 5 years the, the new public consultation and the new rewriting of the guidelines um things do change and so the um, ultimately the first point of contact essentially is the guidelines. It's, it's people, the examiners look at that and say, okay, does this film fit in with those? And those guidelines change over time, uh, with something like the, the, um, approach to homosexuality, it's explicit in the guidelines that that homosexuality is treated the same as heterosexuality. There's no difference at all. Um, so, um, the, what the precedent helps is to make sure that we're not going to do something too surprising too out there, um, and that uh, people can kind of get to know what a category means and and use that information going forwards. But it doesn't mean that nothing will change, and things do change over time. Drugs, as I said, uh, the the treatment of drugs has has got harsher. The treatment of language has got uh, less harsh, and certainly in the early two thousands, the treatment of of sexual activity in the uh, fifteen and eighteen got a lot less harsh, um, because that was what the public said that they felt was appropriate
1: so i am going to finish off with possibly the weirdest most unusual the most i don't know how to put this i never thought i'd say these words put it that way (laughs) would you rather watch six hours of teletubbies or six hours of porn
0: it's that's a a really difficult question actually (laughs) um yeah, it, 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 honestly, it really depends on the porn. <laughs> the, I mean, I've had to watch. I have had to watch six hours of Teletubbies. I've had to watch six hours of Bob the Builder and and Dora the Explorer, um, and and much of this was before I had a kid, and then, and then having to watch them also with my child was was kind of torture. Um, and, it, and the thing I think, the th- one of the things I found hardest with Teletubbies was was keeping my focus um, and, and paying, paying attention, because it's, it's just, it makes you, you want to switch your brain off. With, with porn, you are constantly looking for the thing that might need cutting. Um, but, but with something like that, because there's so rarely any kind of issue... There's an episode of Bob the Builder where Bob is wallpapering Wendy's house and the wallpaper, he's very bad at it. It's a very kind of Mr. Bean type thing. And the wallpaper falls over his face and it really sounds, if you really listen out for it, that you can hear Bob saying fuck, like (laughs) muffled by the wallpaper. Um, And so you just you can't not yeah. listen for stuff like that and not pay attention but it is really difficult to, to maintain focus for that amount of time with something so banal i also seem to recall there's a
1: lot of sexual innuendo in Teletubbies. it again for adults there's, yeah there's, there's a bits bit that, there are bits yeah. that adults get yeah that's um, you know that's funny because it is a sex joke but it's i mean tubby just its own is, yeah exactly uh, <laughs> Uh, it's aimed at four-year-olds or Uh however old children are when they watch Teletubbies, but it's aimed at an age that is never going to understand these jokes, but for the adults, they've got to try and put a bit in there for us. Right. That was our last question because I don't think any question can follow that. That is the ultimate finishing question. Um, That was absolutely amazing. Thank you so much, Jim. Um, But not to forget the people behind the scenes. So tonight's tech was Laurie with Matty backing him up. Um, and with Gerald backing up for me and managing the Slido. Um, and also not to forget our fantastic mods. Thank you, guys. We can't do this without you. Next week, we have Incredulous with Andy Wilson and his guests. If you haven't seen it or heard it before, most of our previous talks are available on our YouTube channel, um, and Incredulous in particular is also its entire own podcast. Um, we're shortly going to open the doors to our virtual pub, the Lockins Razor, which you can join by visiting sitp.online/virtualpub. Uh, the link will be in the chat and i will see you all in the pub or next week thank you very much